Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Jeremy Shapiro, not Mark Leonard. I am the research director of ECFR and I will be taking over as host for Mark Leonard over the next few weeks. This attempt at a coup is um, proceeding along the normal lines. And so first we are seizing the forms of communication, i.e. the podcast. Today's episode will be about the consequences of the war in Gaza uh, for Ukraine, which is the, you know, trying to get at the connections between the two wars, which I think is people have been talking about quite a bit, but not all that systematically. It seems clear to us, at least, that for Kiev, the war in Gaza really couldn't have come at a worse time, just as the fighting had sort of settled into a, arguably a stalemate and Ukraine's top general uh, Valerie Salushny admitted so much as much in The Economist uh, last week. And just as infighting in the U.S. Congress threatens to um, interrupt U.S. military assistance, the war in Gaza has seized the global spotlight away from Ukraine. The, the BBC was getting a message this morning from a, from a listener asking, what happened to the war in Ukraine? Um, so what we're going to try to understand is how uh, the government in Kiev has responded to this shift uh, and what consequences it will have for the war in Ukraine and especially in the long run and and maybe most importantly, what Europe can do to manage an ever-growing list of crises in its neighborhood. So here to discuss this impossible topic with me are um, an all-star cast, as Mark would say, of uh, Gustav Gressel and Kirill Shamiev. Uh, so Gustav, as most listeners probably know, is a frequent guest and a senior policy fellow with the Wider Europe program, focusing on Russia, Eastern Europe, and defense policy. Kirill is a visiting fellow and expert in Russia's civil military relations and domestic politics and policymaking. Welcome to the podcast, uh, Gustav and Kirill. Welcome to the new regime. I hope it meets your liking. So just to start off, it's been a month since the October 7th uh, attacks by Hamas on Israel, and that has unleashed the latest cycle of violence between Israelis and Palestinians. What does this mean for the war in, in Ukraine, in your views? And um, is it just a question of intent, of, in, of attention being taken away, or is there something more fundamental uh, going on? And what steps would you say Kiev has taken to to deal with this. Uh, and from Kirill particularly, I'd also be interested in the Russian perspective. Uh, but let's start with Gustav. Yeah, well, so from Kiev's perspective, the initial reaction was uh, to coming back to October 7th, um, was basically taking side uh, for Israel. That was understandable also from their situation. Uh, there's somebody in your neighborhood that comes across the border uh, and tries to kill you. Um, that is something Ukrainians understand. Um, since then, actually, their commenting on the war has has decreased. So, it, I mean, if you have to fight a war in yourself, you're not extensively busy uh, commenting other wars. Uh, the two hopes they had at the beginning of this was uh, that, first of all, uh, it might uh, ease a bit of the Republican, uh, Republican skepticism towards Ukraine. Uh, so the, one of the key target audiences uh, on, on 
sort of Kiev side was was housing Republicans who uh, thought to restrict President Biden on his uh, support for on the military support for Ukraine, who who have been questioning um, U.S. military support on the premises that this is a never-ending war and we can't fight never-ending wars and kind of gives it, but. In the Middle East, you also have some very long conflicts, and um, <clears throat> you, you still engage there. Um, so uh, that that was number one. The number two, of course, was the hope for at least post-war uh, assistance from and technical cooperation from Israel, which has been very, very much restricted so far. But uh, the kind of Iran supporting Russia. Um, Kiev has very long hoped that it would unblock some of that reluctance, and it hadn't yet. Um, and they hope that it might in the future. But of course, the problem is uh, the longer the war drags on in in Gaza, uh, the more they also question themselves: say, how how will this affect us um, on the long run? Will we at some point compete for weapon systems and then? Sort of more than just political attention and the press, but real substantial military aid with with Israel on that. Um, it's not yet a competition, so most of the weapons Israel needs are not the weapons Ukraine needs. Um, Israel, for for very large bouquet of of systems, has indigenous production stuff, and on the ammunition side, they need different things in quantity than Ukraine needs. Uh, Ukraine predominantly needs artillery shells and Israel is in predominant demand of air-delivered munitions, which Ukraine, lacking much of an air force, um, of course, is not. So at the time, it's not a problem, but everybody, of course, argues, well, if this uh, conflict escalates further, if Lebanon enters into war, if Iran enters in a broader sense, uh, will it then consume uh, more capabilities that Ukraine would need. That's a bit of a worry. Um, but yeah, for, for now, it's more a game of attention than a a competition for military assets. Why is the game of attention so important to, to Kiev? Well, because 85% of, of Ukraine's daily military needs from ammunition to um, vehicles are, come from abroad. So, although Ukraine has uh, undertaken a lot of effort to re-establish its defense industry, uh, it first of all that's a long-term goal uh, in many ways. So, setting up production facilities for weapon systems for ammunition takes time. So they're afraid that they're afraid that if they if they lose the attention of the West, the West's sort of interest in them will yes. flag, and the, the weapon supplies yes. will erode, even though the weapon supplies are there. Do we see any sign of that? Well, the sort of the big battle is going on in DC. Um, you're probably more expert mm. than I am on this battle, but uh, that is, of course, increasingly worrisome for Ukraine because the United States were and are the most important. Do, do you think that that has anything to do with this article that we saw in the Economist? It was quite an extraordinary article, I thought, but I'd be interested in your view from the from the Ukrainian chief of staff, basically saying that the war wasn't going that well. Um, no, so. Actually, I I was a bit surprised that it uh, shook so many in Kiev that the article was published because the facts solutionally stated uh, were quite obvious. There's actually a pending ECFR paper where I tried to elaborate on some of them, so to make some ads. 
So even without um, uh, solution, is sort of the, the sort of the, the problems and technologically were were there already. Uh, the other thing is actually solution made it easier for Zelensky to communicate the sort of less than optimal situation militarily for Ukraine because he very much focused on the technical aspects. There are also a lot of other aspects that Salushi doesn't talk about, like the problems of training new brigades, problem of training officers in quantity to really um, command the expanded Ukrainian army that came after general mobilization and the war. Uh, these issues also t- uh, are responsible for the slow progress of the counteroffensive, but of course they're much more thorny for for Ukraine, for Ukrainians to uh, really go into, um, and he basically set up a narrative that that first of all allows Zelensky to um, talk to international donors and say, "Look, guys, it's technological progress. Um, we tried our best, but things didn't develop as we we thought they would in spring." Uh, and the, se- the second thing is also he sets up uh, expectations domestically. There was huge pressure on. On the Ukrainian armed forces to deliver to liberate the South, um, to push the Russians out. Um, some thought that the war might end if Russia would decisively lose in the South. Um, and all that is, of course, far away um, and leading to frustration. Kirill, um, from, I, I'd be interested to hear your perspective, certainly on the Kiev part, but maybe even more, uh, letting us, giving us some insight into how the Russian government sees the developments in Gaza and what they might mean for its war in Ukraine, they probably have a somewhat different perspective. Yeah, sure, Jeremy. First of all, thanks for having me on on this podcast. As a Russian visiting fellow, at least some regime change in my life, uh, though temporary, so glory to the new leader. When it comes to the Russian position on on uh, on the Israeli Gaza um, crisis, um, well, there are several points. First, that it was a a surprise for the Russians, but a beneficial surprise. Uh, the, the Kremlin uh, is enjoying, as Gustav said before, the uh, uh, diversion of attention to Ukraine. Uh, this is one of the goals they have been pursuing since the uh, start of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine or even before. Uh, they also... Um, Make the best use of uh, of the fact how Israel Israeli forces conducted this operation in Gaza, and trying to expose this uh, quote unquote Western hypocrisy uh, towards uh, its uh, international principles, human rights, and so on, showing basically that human rights are not equal for white and non-white uh, people, and also and by that they undermine they try to undermine Ukrainian attempts to have a broader coalition for the uh, peace plan that. Ukraine has been pushing uh, this year. Uh, what they also do a lot, they try to consolidate, they use it for consolidation of opinion at home as well, which is also very relevant for Russia considering their uh, fake, uh, not not democratic, unfair election, but still important for the elite opinion election next year, presidential election next year. And uh, I've seen it myself um, a lot of um, uh, a lot of videos, photographs translated from Arabic into Russian on Russian social media, where they show look at what uh, the U.S. Of course, they all see this from the lens of Western American interference due to. Um, to the uh, uh, Palestinian people, then, uh, and this, of course, forms this 
perception in the Russian public that okay, we are not, we may be bad, but we are not the only bad, bad ones, and uh, this is how the world functions. And look how the West supports Israel, uh, considering what they're doing there. This is again how the Russian propaganda tries to portray it. Another uh, aspect to this is maintaining uh, ties, uh, maybe even strong ties to Turkey and Iran. Uh, Iran is a very important um, Russian partner in terms of provision of military supplies. And Turkey is a hub for sanction invasions, uh, um, including military military. Uh, military assets and dual use assets that used in uh, in Russian military uh, production, and uh, now they are in, on this aspect they are in line with each other, and uh, and finally what's happening now and what we'll see how the uh, this conflict uh, in uh, in Israel would unfold is tactically use this polarization of opinion in the U.S. and Europe uh, on, uh, on Palestine and Israel topics uh, for their own benefit again using misinformation. And, uh, and trying to break down this Western unity on at least on on these aspects. So, I mean that that's all quite clear, and it, but it it sort of describes Russia as seeing various, let's say, tactical opportunities in the Gaza war and trying to exploit them on the U.S. domestic front in the region uh, and even in Ukraine. But if you if you if you listen to Gustav, what, what Gustav said about the problems that Ukraine would have if this war escalated, uh, that would imply that the Russians would have a, uh, a huge incentive to help the war escalate. So do you think that they will do that or is, that, is there any indication that they are or is that just something that they see as too risky? Um, on the, in terms of um, public narratives, uh, they do show the uh, the Hamas Palestinian cause. They they are side. Uh, they even invited Hamas representatives to Moscow. But I'm not sure about any uh, capabilities even to um, to um, support uh, uh, Hamas or any other forces in the region that can uh, that can intervene on 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 the anti-Israeli side. Because also it's important that Israeli-Russia relations has had a long history, and even though they're now they are in a very, um, uh, very negative, uh, um, kind of very negative uh, status. It's still uh, Russia's having a relationship with Israel, functional relationship with Israel, important considering again their relationship with uh, with Iran and uh, Russia's role in Syria. It's important to keep uh, for them for the Kremlin to keep this pragmatic relationship in the future when this crisis would uh, would end. Um, no matter how it, how it ends, and uh, so on this regard, I think we can we surely can expect that Russia would do its best to um, uh, promote diplomatically and with the use of propaganda tools uh, uh, the continuation of this conflict of this crisis in Israel. But uh, when it comes to military means, uh, this is this is yet to be seen, and uh, there are there are other. Problem like pro- barriers in place. Well, it, it's. I mean, there are other mechanisms for escalation, right? Besides military, besides supplying military supplies, they could be um, encouraging the Iranians to escalate, or they could be um, even sort of fostering conflicts between uh, Iran and Israel, or Lebanon and or Hezbollah and Israel. Is there it, it, that would be you know the the way in which 
well, I guess if, if I was dealing with the problem, that's what I would be thinking about. Um, so is there any indication of that or is it just, or is that just too risky? Um, I would say that through the escalation of, the, of this crisis, especially with the more direct involvement of Iran, uh, would definitely benefit Russia's, uh, Russia's war in Ukraine. Uh, that would be a gift to Putin and that would undermine the Western support, including militarily because it's because of the sh- uh, scale of threats that Israel will have to face and the allies would have to step in. But um, I would uh, doubt that actually Russia can be so decisive considering the Iranian positions in the region, because uh, still, despite having some uh, um, presence in Syria and strong ties with Iran and some relationship with Turkey and other and other regions and other nations in the region, uh, Russia is. Uh, is very busy with its war efforts. It also has uh, upcoming presidential election on its plate and uh, they have to manage other priorities. And now I think it's, uh, they're trying to, um, uh, to reap the benefits, but uh, whether I, I would be skeptical about their capabilities to somehow push or um, to, to be a more decisive actor in, in, in this uh, affair. May I, may I second that? Um, if, you, if you look it through from Moscow's perspective, um, first of all, there's a risk that you might lose one of your ammunition supplies because the ammunition has to go elsewhere. Uh, Iranian ammo supply, the most known ones are the Shahid drones, but there's also a lot of artillery, mortar ammunition, uh, unguided artillery rockets, etc., uh, coming across the Caspian Sea. And yes, uh, North Korea is delivering more, as it seems now, but uh, Iran still has a, a quite a portion in, in sort of the Russian armor portfolio. So Russia is actually more dependent on Iran than it ever was in this relationship before. The second thing is escalation than the Iranian-Israeli or then uh, Iranian-US confrontation might uh, actually drive Iran then back into the need of military assistance by Russia, which Russia is in a very bad position to give, given the needs for the war against Ukraine. Uh, and that would make Russia look enormously weak on the world stage if they they would parrot escalation and then could not live up to the allied demand of protection. So uh, if I were Putin, I'd be very careful with that. I, I As Kirill explained, explained, explore the propaganda thing, um, but basically see what happens and claim to be the mastermind uh, and the beneficiary of whatever happens, but insufficiently being able to influence whatever happens. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. But does that mean that they're probably at least thinking about how to capitalize on escalation if it does happen? Oh, certainly. Uh, Okay. Um, So maybe we can step back a little bit from the sort of immediate trade-offs and think about what this means for the trends in the war in in Ukraine. Arguably, this is sort of the first time in the nearly two years that the uh, that the war has been going on that um, that the Ukrainian government has been uh, had confronted with the reality that the world is eventually going to move on. I mean, it, it's sort of been quite striking how we are the the ways in which we sort of move from crisis to crisis, um, and that the the crisis before last gets almost no attention. 
Um, and it's, you know, some people are now talking about a Taiwan crisis. Obviously, that's very uncertain. But uh, I'm wondering if this has any implications for how uh, either Europeans or Ukrainians should be seeing the war in, in Ukraine and whether it should be affecting their, con their, their conduct of the war and their approach to um, negotiations. Uh, is so, I mean, that's a bit of a leading question, but maybe I can put it another way. Is anything going to change in the way they conduct the war or should it? Um, maybe we can start with you, Gustav. Well, I don't think so. Um, so there's a lot of talk about uh, negotiations in the West, uh, but it's talk that emerges in the West. And there's, uh, I, I sometimes get bewildered when Journalists ask me, yeah, but Biden would really need a ceasefire in Ukraine for the election campaign. So why doesn't Putin want to negotiate? And like, I, you just answered your own question by posing <laughs> it. Um, uh, so from, from Moscow's point of view, there's the, why would Putin negotiate with Ukraine? He might get Donald Trump in the White House in one year. I'm not talking about Putin so much as Ukraine. Um, uh, what we've seen is now that the um, uh, the Ukrainian ch uh, chief of staff says that it's a stalemate. You've mentioned that they have 85% of their armaments coming from abroad. We've talked about how that abroad doesn't seem as certain, both in the U.S. Congress and in parts of Europe, as it did even a month ago. Um, I guess if I was sitting in Kiev, that would worry me, and I'd at least think about other things to do, but maybe uh, they're not. Well, they they're, they're actually th were thinking about that and are doing things, but these are long-term issues. So, uh, what are they? What are they doing? Well, for for this year, uh, Ukraine underwent a so-called ten one hundred and one defense industrial program. Uh, ten stands for. Uh, ten time increasing the production for sort of legacy systems, if I would call this in U.S. jargon, um, sort of established weapon systems like uh, infantry fighting vehicles, tanks, um, armored personal carriers, all this kind of stuff. Um, One hundred time increasing the production capabilities of the expendables, that is, ammunition, drones, uh, all sorts of stuff that get. Shot around. What's the time frame for that kind of thing? At uh, the end of the year, uh, and one time producing the the, the end the, of this year. Yeah, the end of this year, um, and one time producing the kind of, or at least rolling out uh, prototypes for the kind of next generation stuff. So the thing you need to to uh, get back to maneuver warfare again and not to be stuck with stalemate. These are electronic warfare systems. Um, uh, air defense systems, etc. Um, so, so that's at least the aim. The problem is, you know, even with that effort, uh, Ukraine will remain dependent for certain classes of weapon systems. We, uh, the whole aircraft saga and aircraft, aircraft ammunition, it's much too complex to develop that on a short notice in the time frame Ukraine has for like sort of looking even even if you take long term in the war, like looking one year ahead, it's much too short for, for developing these kind of stuff. The same is with complex air defense systems, you know, stuff that takes down drones on the front line or in the back, but Patriots, RSTs, etc. Ukraine will be always dependent 
uh, well, even if they succeed at that, even if they succeed in that in that uh, first part, I think it would be it, it would be uh, in the interests of both the U.S. and Europe to hire them as consultants for their own defense industry, because uh, that's quite an impressive that would be quite an impressive feat. Um, Carol, we're we're almost out of time, but I, I, I'd be really interested to hear from your perspective on whether Kiev is or should changing its approach to either fighting the war or ending it. Um, uh, I'm not sure what Kiev should do because I focus on the uh, on the Russian side uh, first and foremost. But uh, talking from the Russian perspective, right. any ceasefire, any cessation of hostilities, in my view, would be very beneficial for the Russian for the Russian side. They would uh, they would use it to keep rearming its military, trading its reserves to also working uh, with the elites to trying to kind of uh, find a new arrangement that would keep the domestic political situation stable uh, and uh, and also despite again uh, the uh, march 2000 next year election are that are which are not democratic and unfair it's still an important uh, sign it would be an important sign for the elites and for the bureaucracy that everything is under control and in check so they need at least these few months before the election to keep everything stable and do the political dimension of this warfare with Ukraine. And I think after the election, we would see uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the another wave of uh, uh, Russian offensive actions, probably even the announcement of second mobilization or just uh, not, annu- not announcement it, but um, silent expansion of, uh, of, uh, of mobilization inside Russia to bring more uh, troops uh, for the offensive in spring and summer next year. So any attempts to stop this war, I view as, um, uh, to stop the war, I mean, as a, as a ceasefire, not as a uh, final, uh, say, uh, uh, peace agreement between Russia and Ukraine, uh, as, uh, as a temporary um, pause that the Kremlin would uh, use for its own benefit and then the war would resume. Okay, that's depressing. Uh Kirill, did I hear you right to say that you expect after the Russian presidential election in March that there will be renewed mobilization, possibly silent, but renewed mobilization nonetheless, and then and then renewed a renewed Russian offensive in Ukraine? Yeah, this is how I look at uh, the Russian regime and strategic decision making. That it, because it's a personalist uh, dictatorship, the number one criteria for the Kremlin is to keep Vladimir Putin in power. And in order to keep him in power, they have this milestone to achieve some level of needed uh, numbers uh, on the election next year. And for that, this 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 priority is sort of the leading one. And any other objectives are now as uh, as in a pyramid. They go. They, they try to fit everything in uh, in in this for this objective. But after that, they if they secure this, and for now we see that I think they're they would be successful uh, for multiple reasons we can discuss in another episode. Uh, this would uh, uh, free their hands uh, to focus more, for example, on the military effort to trade some to be more uh, uh, risk uh, accepting to, for example, to conduct more risky operations that could end up badly, but still and with political significance, but still they would have this resource to use for for their strategic goal is to uh, to wage war against Ukraine. So, and considering that all the analysts that I read and uh, and clean here and see far that next year would be uh, difficult for Ukraine uh, in terms of military supplies and uh, the results of this counteroffensive, 
I don't see why the Kremlin would not use this uh, window of opportunity for them to to use uh, any possible military means to achieve uh, further gains in, in Ukraine. Okay. Well, that's not good news, but I guess it means that maybe a future podcast will look at whether Ukraine is taking away attention from the Gaza conflict, uh, which is uh, both ironic and tragic. Um, so on that note, um, I guess we can turn to the one thing that we have left to do on this podcast, and that is our bookshelf section. I know it's everybody's favorite section, but part of season control is to maintain the traditions. So uh, what, uh, what do you, what Carolyn Gustav do you recommend to our listeners? What are you reading at the moment? What's on your bookshelf? Why don't we start with uh, Kirill? Um, I would actually recommend my colleague's uh, book, uh, uh, Jade Maglin's book, uh, Russia's War. I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a very good piece on uh, the Russian domestic perspective dimension of the Russian domestic perception of uh, Russia's war against Ukraine. It was uh, written uh, very swiftly, but with a great uh, analytical and academic rigor. And I think Jade did a great job to explain uh, an important part of how the Russian society generally, uh, what what's its positions are on, on the war with Ukraine and uh, what are the reasons for this? Okay, that sounds fascinating. Um, if you can give us a little bit of preview, what is the bottom line? What is the Russian society's perspective on the war in Ukraine? Um, yeah, if I if to be short, uh, basically Jade uh, claims that in the book she claims that the, the Russian society, um, despite all these talks whether Russians support the war or not, the bottom line is that uh, that the Russian population has this. She uses the term, I think. Um, uh, acquiescence, if I'm not mistaken, like this uh, passive acceptance of uh, of the war, and then post hoc rationalization and trying to find out, um, well, some kind of reasoning why their government is doing what they are doing, uh, and in the situation when they have little access and little possibility to influence this government, and this, despite uh, that's the sort of passive acceptance of the war, still gives. Um, uh, important resource uh, for the Kremlin to, to do what they want because the Russian the Russian society would uh, keep uh, um, uh, well uh, keep being silent and uh, trying to find uh, reasons to uh, understand why they're they're kind of on a, on good side despite probably not being on on that one. Uh, that's that's interesting. Passive acquiescence is something that we've been trying to foster at ECFR, but totally failing. Uh, so maybe we can learn something. Um, Gustav, you're the master of not accepting passive acquiescence. So uh, what's on your bookshelf? Oh, my bookshelf is Christopher Miller, uh, The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine. Um, but I have only started so far. Um, uh, even though I was on holiday, holiday with little kids uh, provides uh, very little time for reading. Um, well, the few first pages I read are quite fascinating. So I I definitely recommend it, although, of course, I can't give a final verdict on it. But it's, it's basically Christopher's um, sort of essence on the war from the start of the Donbass War, Crimea annexation up to the full-scale invasion. So, yeah, quite quite a lot of material. Yeah, it's interesting. We seem to be 
we seem to be experiencing the sort of first wave of Ukraine war books even before the war has ended. I guess that's reflective of our times, but quite valuable, I think. Um, on my bookshelf is, uh, unfortunately, I guess, uh, a fascinating report that is done by a consortium of U.S. think tanks led by the Heritage Foundation called Heritage 2025, which is a compendium of uh, various the various plans that they're putting together for the next Republican president, um, assumedly uh, Donald Trump, um, for uh, reform and policy initiatives in every department of the U.S. government as a chapter for every department, including several departments I'd never even heard of. So it's a fairly comprehensive uh, plan. And I would say the main focus of it is on um, uh, dismantling the administrative state and purging the state, the American state of um, what they view as obstructionist bureaucrats who are, uh, who are partisan in their, um, in their perspective. Um, so it's a, it's a fascinating read and I, it's quite long, but I think it's also quite valuable for understanding what the next Republican administration, how the next Republican administration might approach policy. But for now, from Gustav Kirill and myself, Jeremy Shapiro, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Anand Sundar and the editor of this episode is Maria Faro Saratz. Mm-hmm.